Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcasts. We're joined today by Professor Li Jenko from the London School of Economics. Uh, Li teaches Chinese political thought. Li, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start by asking you about the wider questions that your research asks. Uh, as I understand it, it's to do with trying to understand political thought in China without relying on a conceptual vocabulary that is derived from the West. Is that broadly true? Yeah, that's true. So I work in a field that for a long, long time has been constituted, some would say obsessed with European texts. Some of these you might be familiar with. They're texts such as Locke's Second Treatise, um, Hobbes' Leviathan. Um, basically, these are texts in the European tradition that sort of set out normative, that is to say, prescriptive rules for how we should live together and how we should get along and the kinds of justice that we should be pursuing. Um, but for a long, long time, no one has really, no one in this field has really examined political thinking outside of Europe and America. So one of my contributions is to try to take um, Chinese thinkers, particularly Chinese thinkers of the, with the, what's called the late imperial period, so 17th to the 20th centuries, thinking about the ways in which they might um, use certain kinds of vocabularies or terminologies that could be helpful for us now thinking through dilemmas of, of political life that may or may not extend beyond um, the specific situations in which those Chinese thinkers found themselves. So part of this is kind of trying to show that just as someone like Thomas Hobbes or John Locke can write about their specific context and respond to the specific questions of their time, but at the same time have at the same time be saying something meaningful to people and places that are beyond those of, say, 17th century England. So too, I think many of these Chinese thinkers have things to say that, while responsive to their particular context, also speak beyond those contexts. Could you give an example of a kind of terminology that you think does the job or is potential, has that potential? So in my first book, it's called Making the Political, and it examines the work of this kind of neglected forgotten by history intellectual named Zhang Shijiao. And Zhang Shijiao takes up a really interesting problem. Um, and this is a problem that hasn't actually been, been looked at or examined in the wider field of political theory, which is how do we build a democratic community if we lack the historical heritage of democratic practice, right? So many of the people in my field looking at what is called democratic foundings, the founding of a democratic community, tend to assume that at some point in time, at some point in the past, there is a heritage of democratic action um, that activists or thinkers or writers or students could draw upon in order to make democracy both intelligible to them, something that, that's actually thinkable, but also something that is what we would say is normatively desirable, that is to say something that we feel we really should be pursuing. But Zhang Shijiao was actually working at a time and place in early 20th century China that did not have such a heritage of democratic thinking. It didn't have any instances of democratic practice that he could draw on to communicate to his audience and sort of point to and say, this is what we want to be aiming towards. But oddly enough, although Zhang Shijiao's problem has never really been examined in the field of political theory, if you think about it, it happens all the time, all over the world, not just in places that lack democratic practice or that lack a democratic heritage. For example, um, you know, places that have more authoritarian rather than democratic experiences with government, but also in any instance of social change where we're trying to examine how we go from not having something 
to thinking and doing differently, right? So how do we go from a society, for example, that is sexist and racist to a society that is not sexist and racist? This is very much an instance of how Zhang's question can actually reverberate even in you know, contemporary European and American societies. And in the case of Zhang or any of the other um, thinkers that you've studied, what role does the past play in their thinking? What kind of historical reference are they using? So this is actually a really important point. Um, Many of the intellectuals that I study in the 19th and 20th century in China were drawing on um, a, a very interesting combination of past Chinese precedents and models for thinking about how to act politically and how to build democratic community and how to build political community in general. Um, at the same time, they were also interpreting and understanding new models of the past coming in from Europe. Now, there were a variety of ways in which these intellectuals interpreted these models, these past models. There was one fairly radical group associated with the May 4th movement that rejected entirely. Um, this, the May 4th movement, I should explain, was a, a, a sort of a student-led movement in reaction to China's treatment under the Versailles Treaty, and they urged a whole, what the, the sort of stereotypical view of, of, this, of this movement is that they urged wholesale westernization. Um, and indeed, many of the more radical proponents of this view said that the Chinese past should be ditched entirely. So there was a famous phrase, don't read old books. Um, don't read old books, throw them in the, literally people saying, throw them in the toilet, use them as toilet paper. What you should be reading is uh, Western books, your books about the European past. Because to many of these more radical thinkers, it was the European past that should really be setting the standards and setting guidelines for where China was going in the present and future. And so are these thinkers reading people like Hobbes and um, Locke as well? Um, some of them, it would depend. Interestingly enough, um, although they tended to have a very kind of wholesale view of the West, they sort of saw the West as a piece. Um, the ways in which they interpreted the West changed based on, for example, where they studied. So many of these thinkers studied abroad, and they would come back with new, literally with new books um, in their suitcases. And if people studied in Britain, then they were more likely to read someone like John Locke, but they were also reading contemporaries such as Walter Badgett and um, L.T. Hobhouse, for example. Um, but if they studied in France, they would have a different set of thinkers, a different set of reference, historical reference, from which to build what they took to be a future for China. And one of the things we've, we've been thinking about a lot is the ways in which also Europe is mediated through Japan for some of these uh, Chinese intellectuals. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, so it turns out that many of these intellectuals that were very much proponents of thinking about leading China along a more westernized path in the early 20th century um, were actually, had never studied in the West, but rather were getting their impressions from the West about what the West was from Japan. So Liang Qichao would be a classic example of this, although he did travel briefly um, in the United States. He, he spent I think 11 years in Japan and much of what he understood to be the West and European thinking and European past was actually how Japanese intellectuals had sort of digested it and re repackaged it in the journals and publications of the time. And in your more recent work, you focus on Taiwan. Can you tell us a bit about what role the past played for understanding Taiwan? So this is a really interesting question because in Taiwan, the past... Um, is always very important. And the question in contemporary Taiwan is which past should we be thinking about? What is, what is Taiwan's past? Now, I know that, that that question might sound quite silly because if we think about, for example, what is the, the past of the United States? Well, you know, we're told as school children, it's very simple. 
We started off as 13 colonies under British domination and we threw off the tyranny of George III and then we became the United States and it seems quite simple and straightforward. Um, but it's of course never that straightforward. And in the case of Taiwan, one of the questions that is being debated is um, when Taiwan began and when we should be thinking about the beginning of Taiwan. And there's been increasing interest, for example, in Taiwan's colonial past. And I study one part of that colonial past. So I'm looking particularly in the 17th century when both um, Dutch administrators from the, um, the Dutch East India Company um, established a trading colony and expanded their territorial jurisdiction over large parts of particularly southwestern Taiwan from the 1620s to the 1660s. And I'm also looking at the ways in which the, the Chinese, particularly the, the Qing Empire, which was established in the mid-17th century, um, how Chinese colonial administrators and travelers looked at Taiwan and why they thought it was important or not important to establish territorial control over the island, and particularly what they thought was important to do with the indigenous peoples on Taiwan. So as it happens, Taiwan is inhabited by um, a number of Austronesian indigenous peoples, and there's archeological evidence that Taiwan might even be the, the source for Austronesian culture that later spread to Polynesia, Micronesia, um, and, and even Hawaii. So Taiwan actually plays an incredibly important global role, not just in the present, but also in the past. So one of the things I wanna do is kind of unpack what that history is and, and how people have thought about Taiwan and how they've contested its identity and what they've done with it. But it seems complicated to unpack this past of the indigenous people, right? Well, so the indigenous people in Taiwan, um, of course, there's, there's a wide variety of them. Um, and the identity of these people changed through time. Not only that, but we don't have a, a lot of textual evidence telling us what, um, what kinds of things indigenous people on Taiwan we're, we're doing for a lot of the 17th century, which is what I'm looking at. So we have some Chinese records, and we have some Dutch records, but of course, we don't necessarily have records written in the voices of the indigenous peoples themselves. Now, there was a case in which the Dutch began teaching indigenous peoples um, Dutch writing, and we know from Chinese records that this endured for, in some cases, hundreds of years, because we have, um, Chinese traders and administ the colonial administrators going to Taiwan and sort of recording that some of the indigenous people could read and write the, the language of what was called the, the, the red-haired barbarians, which was the Dutch. And in these Chinese records, what are the strategies for placing these indigenous people in time? Well, there's, there's several strategies, let's say. And just like anything else, there's never a homogenous one way of doing things. I would say the majority of the time, um, there was a debate about the extent to which the indigenous peoples on Taiwan were even human at all. Some people said they were not human, that they were like animals. They compared them to monkeys and apes. So you could probably tell that this was a discourse that was shot through with racist overtones. It's very similar to the ways in which, for example, European travelers to the New World regarded the indigenous peoples in South America. Um, there was another strain of thinking about the indigenous peoples, some of whom urged the, their fellow Chinese to recognize them as truly human. But this was a bit of a double-edged sword because when Chinese began seeing the indigenous peoples as human beings, that also meant that to be properly human, they had to be educated in specific ways, namely those that aligned them 
with the goals and sort of outward forms of Chinese civilization. And this, this extended not only to what they learned in school or the fact that they were sent to a kind of formal training um, to learn about, for example, specific Chinese texts, but also that they had to change what they ate, what they wore, how they wore their hair. They had to stop tattooing. They had to, um, for example, where it, by the time of the the, the Qing dynasty, everyone was mandated to wear a queue, which is like a long ponytail. The men were made to wear a long ponytail um, that was styled a certain way. So this kind of control extended into in a very deep way to basically the entire everyday life of, of indigenous people. How does your work with these um, remaining Chinese texts um, changes the global view on political thought? So there's several goals. One of them is to point out the extent to which Chinese administrations themselves were not just the victim of colonial aggression. So we know very well about um, the China's century of humiliation in which they were subjected to um, not quite European colonization, but certainly European incursion and control. This is between the Opium War and... Correct. So this is, this is the 19th and 20th century. Um, but we also, we don't tend to know as much about the ways in which China was itself practicing forms of territorial expansion and cultural imperialism on its own borders and frontiers. So that is to say, in some ways, China was an aggressor as much as a victim of colonial oppression. So one of the things I want to do is sort of point out the, how this is, is working in the Chinese case. And if we can do that, then we can have a broader conversation about what colonialism is and what its specific oppressions look like. It seems to me to go back to your bigger interest in these questions that much of the language of imperialism that we use in, in uh, political thought or in history is derived from European imperialism. Do you also think there's something that Chinese uh, imperial strategy can contribute to this wider language of political theory? So that's the ultimate goal with this research is to think about not just how colonial strategies or how colonial institutions were discussed in China, which I think is in inherently important, but also how they were resisted and interrogated, because as a political philosopher, I'm interested in, in prescriptive, sort of prescriptive conclusions. What can we say about how we ought to react to specific kinds of um, uses of power, for example? So how should we react to the extension of a kind of Confucian framework over the indigenous, over the life of the indigenous people, right? So a lot of the work that is out there has actually looked at this in terms of categories such as race and culture. And these are useful, but only to a point, because they're useful in the sense that they help draw China into this broader conversation. And I think it's important to point out that there were racial overtones to much of this discourse, that there was a cultural imperialism going on. But at the same time, these terms didn't exist in Chinese discourse. There was no real term for race. There was no real term for culture in the way that it's used in contemporary social science. So one of a part of my project is to kind of look at and examine what terms actually were used. And it, it turns out that a lot of the obsession with reforming the indigenous people had a lot to do with their human nature. Now, this isn't a term that's absent in, in European discourse, certainly but it plays out in interesting new ways in the Chinese case. It's, it seems to be the case that the more a Chinese thinker tended to see others, what they would call, usually they would call them barbarians, or they were talking specifically in Taiwan about the indigenous people, but the more they tended to see these others as 
human beings, the more likely they were to recommend and endorse colonial intervention in remaking these human beings into different kinds of people. But the more they tended to see them as animalistic, ironically enough, they tended to withdraw, they tended to endorse a withdrawal of colonial intervention. So in some ways it's this odd, you're sort of stuck in this odd double bind. You almost, if you're a non-Chinese other, you kind of want to be labeled an animal so they just leave you, leave you alone, right? It, and I think in some cases, though, now of course the, the discourse in Europe changed over time, but in some cases in Europe, I think it was, especially in the 18th and 19th century, a recognition of humanity was part of what mitigated the effects of colonial intervention um, rather than encouraged it. So this is something, I, I have to do more research here, but this is something that I'm, I'm interested in exploring further. Lee Jenko, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. <laughs>